0: So grab your outlines, open them up, and let me kind of give you a little, I don't know, behind the scenes look of of how we do a few things here. Um, Every so often, every four months or so, um, with a lot of prayer we will ask God, what are, what are, what do you want us to teach? And I'll sit down with Pastor Rich and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? And um, like, for instance, we've already got all the way planned through the rest of the year, what all the messages are going to be, what we feel like God is leading us. We're flexible. If God wants to, you know, turn us on a dime, we will. And we already know that we're going to be doing 40 days of faith. We've never done 40 days of faith in January starting uh, out. And I'm about to start shooting the videos for the – Home group Bible studies, um, the forty, the uh, the small group studies uh, that uh, we're going to ask you to get in in January. So you're going to be thinking to yourself, "I've never done 40 days of faith. I'm going to plan on. I'm not taking a you know a three week vacation in January. I'm going to plan on being here in January like you do every year. Um, and then we'll start, you know, as we turn the we we'll start into September in this semester, we'll start planning Easter and Mother's Day of next year and It's no fun to plan that far ahead, but when you get there and you kind of already have a plan down. So this past spring, i tell you all that to let you know that, Rich and I sat down. We asked ourselves or asked God, what do you want us to teach? And um, we asked ourselves the question, let's look back over the last 20 years, the last two decades, and say what are the three or four – we always do a book study, kind of a book of the Bible study in the summer – Um, and in this case we're going to do a real book study, what are the three or four series that we've done over the last 20 years that have had the biggest impact in our own lives personally or we've seen impact in the life of our church? And one of those series that has personally impacted me probably more than any other series is this series, The Best Question Ever. Uh, This will be the third time that we've gone through this. I'll explain that in a second. I've used the principles of this series in my own life and in the lives of my children more than probably any other series in the last 18 years, other than experiencing God. Experiencing God, God has used in my life to to change or to move me more than any other thing where god is always at work around me that god is always pursuing a love relationship with me that is real and personal that god speaks he invites me to join him in his work and speaks through the church and the holy spirit and through his word and through prayer and that leads to a crisis of belief and and i adjust my life i experience god as as i obey we've we've actually gone through that series um i think it was this year um before um right before easter and um this Best Question Ever series is kind of the same way in my life over the last 18 years. Let me give you the background. About 20 years ago, Andy Stanley taught a sermon series at his church in Georgia called Foolproof. It was so good that we got the outlines in the sermon notes, and we taught the Foolproof series here at SCC um, about, 18, about 18 years ago, with permission, of course. And around that same time, I think it was 2004, Andy took about 95% of that sermon series and he put it in he published it in a book called The Best Question Ever. That book has always been on my top 10 list. If you were to say to me like some people do like pastor can you recognize, recommend a book for me what are the best books you've ever read kind of a thing, then The Best Question Ever is has been on the top 10 list for me. And really, it's one of the top five books that I've ever read. I've read it many times. And it's right up there with 40 Days of Purpose. It's right up there with, like I said, Experiencing God and the Purpose Driven Church and the Principle of the Path and several others. If you were to, I know you're writing all these down really fast. But if you were to email me and say, what are your top five, the top five are solid. The top ten is a little wishy-washy for me. You know, I'm always kind of replacing that eight, nine, and ten. Somebody gets bumped out and then gets put back when you read something that's, oh my goodness, this is going to be one of those, one of those books. I'm buying a trunk load of them and I'm handing them out. The newest one I've added to that is Dr. Steve Green, my good friend who passed away, um, in, in May. His book, Love Leads. I was able to get a publisher price. I have 200 copies of those. I'm going to be giving those out to everybody who goes to class 101 from now on. Until they run out. Love Leads is another one of those top ten books for me in life change. So about ten years ago, or 2014, I guess that's not quite ten years, eight years ago, um, they rebranded the book. You can't, some of you are already on Amazon going, the best question ever, and it's got all these weird people. Um, to get the best question ever, they've rebranded it. Now the new name of the book is Ask It. A S K Space IT by Andy Stanley. You go to Amazon. It's green. It's got like a big question mark button um, that's on it. Um, and so if you want to get the book, I would encourage you to do so and read it. Um, and then he's taken some of the best material from this book and he's put it into a new one of the chapters in his new one of his newest books, which is Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Two of my small groups have gone through Better Decision, to A Regret, Fewer Regrets. It's the uh, the small group is some of the best small group material we've ever gone through. In fact, the men's Monday night football and Bible study, we're planning or targeting to do um, better decisions, fewer regrets for the second half of the season. There's a Tony Evans uh, series that we're going to do for the first six weeks, and then we're going to do better decisions, fewer regrets. Even if you've been through it one time, you can attest that. Oh, yeah, I'll sit through that again. It's, it's, it's that good. You should read that book, too. Okay. I didn't mean for this to feel like, you know, the first day of classes in freshman year. You know, turn in your syllabuses. You know, the final exam will be 75% of But it is the beginning of the school year, so you're used to that already. You, this is what your kids are experiencing. So what is, what is the best question ever? My kids have heard me quote this question a thousand times. They were 10 years old and 12 years old when I discovered this book, this series, this question 18 years ago. If you were here 10 years ago when we redid the series and we taught it again, you've probably been using this question with your kids also. This is a question that I'm telling you, you are going to love using this question and quoting it to others. It is the best question to give advice to your kids, to your siblings, to random strangers, anybody you want. I mean, this is the question that is the best question to apply to everyone else's life in your life. Applying it to ourselves is even more important, but much more difficult. And I have to be honest, although I've used this in my own life more than any other question, over the last 18 years, I haven't used it quite enough. Because we've all done some dumb, dumb stuff in our lives, haven't we? Anybody done some dumb stuff? So, oh, we got some perfect people here. Who knew? Oh, wow. You did a dumb thing by not raising your hands. You're welcome to the club. Yes. So I thought it would be the best way to start this series off would be to have our tech team. We're gonna, they're going to bring a microphone around now. If you'll just stand up and share with us the dumbest thing you've ever done. And then we'll just go down, you should see the, the guests are like, "Is he serious?" He's never serious. I was serious one time. I came out. I was real serious. I heard somebody in the front row lean and he never say, "This is a skit, obviously." So no, 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 we're not going to have you say your dumbest thing. But if you'd like to say your spouse is no, I'm only kidding. <laughs> Some of you are, you do that on Facebook anyway. Um, We've just all dumb done dumb stuff, haven't we? There's money we wish we'd never... Don't point at anybody. You don't have to raise your hand to this. But really, there's money we wish we'd never spent. There are relationships we wish we'd never gotten into. Friendships. For some people, there are marriages they wish they'd never gotten into. There are deals we wish we'd never done. There are partnerships we wished we'd never formed. There are investments we wish we'd never made. Stock tips we wish we'd never taken. There are dates we wish we'd never gone on. There are invitations we wish we'd never responded to. And there are opportunities, opportunities of a lifetime, that we wish we had never taken advantage of. It could go on and on and on. Here's what I want you to write down, top of your outline there. We have all made decisions we regret. All of us. We've all made decisions we regret. The person beside you, you might even know some of the decisions they regret. The person in front of you and behind you, they've made decisions they regret. On this campus, I think every single classroom, other than maybe the bed babies... You know, the non-adults, the babies in the bed babies, you know, the six-month-olds haven't made any decisions they regret yet. Or even if they have made them, they haven't regretted them yet. But for the rest of us, we've all made decisions. We can all look back on our life at decisions that we regret and we wish that we could have a do-over. We wish we could, oh, if I could, I would change that. In some cases, it was just one night. In some cases, it was week, a weekend. For, for a lot of people, it was a whole week called spring break. And you made some decisions at spring break that you still regret? You don't even remember them. It was kind of foggy. And, and let's just face it. For those of us who are my age and went to spring break, thank goodness there weren't any of these around. Right? There's literally no evidence, just bad memories, hopefully, of most of our Bad choices that we made on spring break. For other people, it's more like a month or several years. Several several chapters of their life where they made decision after decision after decision that they regret. But all of us have chapters or at least pages in our life story that we would like to go back and we would like to rewrite it. And the odd thing is, when we look back at those weekends, or we look back at spring breaks, or we look back at those, those deals, or those partnerships, or, or, or the decisions that we made, when we look back at those years, it is so obvious to us how stupid we were. Can I say the word stupid? I always get a weird feeling. I actually had a guy leave our church over the word stupid one time. He's like, hey, Pastor, you know, we don't say that, that S word. And I'm like, did I say the S word? You know, stupid. In our home, and we try to teach her, so we just can't stay here. And I'm thinking, oh, man, it's a good thing they left because if it's stupid is going to f- offend you, there's no chance I won't offend you every week, okay? But okay, if you want to use the word dumb, it's really stronger than dumb. The biblical word is foolish. But foolish means stupid, it means way dumber than dumb. We need a stronger word than dumb, but anyway, we have made dumb, 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 and stupid, and certainly foolish decisions in our past. And and it's obvious looking back because we say things like, how could I have been so dumb? What was I thinking? How could I have been so, that's word, stupid? How could I have been so blind? How could I have been so foolish? And it's so clear now, isn't it? And what's strange is we run into people in our lives today who are making similar decisions as the ones that we regret, the ones that we made. Maybe it's our children, you know, like father or like son, like mother or like daughter. Oh, they're making the same mistake I made. It's in their genes, you know, and you've modeled it. And, and, and we say to them, or maybe it's not our children, maybe it's just maybe it's somebody that we work with in the other cubicle, or maybe it's somebody that's in our extended family. And we watch them make the same dumb decisions that we made earlier in life. And we say to them, because we have learned that that's the wrong decision. I don't know if we, I wanted to say we've learned from our mistakes, hopefully. But probably even though we didn't learn from our mistakes, we know it's the wrong decision. And we say things like, you don't want to go there. Oh, honey, you don't want to walk down that road. I know where that road leads. You do not want to end up where I ended up. It's not going to take you where you think you want to go or where you think it's going to go. It's not going to take you anywhere good. And their response to us is the same. They respond to us the same way that we responded to people who tried to warn us. Basically, they tell us, hey, it's none of your business. Mind your own business. They may even throw an expletive or two into that sentence. Because they feel like this is what I need to do. They feel like my heart is telling me this is the right choice. I'm going to listen to my heart. Here, let me just just be really, really, really clear. Our hearts deceive us. Our hearts deceive us. The Bible tells us all through the Bible. Our hearts deceive us. Somewhere along the way, we have decided... If we can just follow our hearts, it'll lead us to a good place. I don't know, did we pick that up in Hollywood somewhere? Did we pick that up, you know, in some some inspirational story somewhere? This sounds like advice you'd get from Oprah. Just follow your heart, honey. It'll lead you to a good place. That sounds so good, but really? Because looking back on my life and looking back on the lives of so many others, it's plain to see that our hearts deceive us many, many, many times. Following our hearts did not lead us to a good place. Following our hearts did not lead us to where we wanted to go ultimately. And consequently, we have a life full of regret and full of guilt and full of things we wish we could go back And undo. For many of us, our life is like a really bad country western song. You know, I lost my truck, my dog ran away, you know. And it's our decisions that have caused us so much pain. So learning to ask the best question ever, ever actually protects us from the inconsistent results of following our own heart. And this question has the potential to foolproof your marriage. It has the potential to foolproof your finances. This question has the potential to foolproof your relationships and foolproof our morality because it answers the questions that the Bible doesn't seem to completely answer. There are some questions that we ask that the Bible doesn't tell us. Well, how far is too far? Or how much is too much? Or how much is enough? Or how much is not enough? And we all wrestle with those questions sometimes because... Because people come up to me as a pastor and they're like, well, what does the Bible say about this? Or well, That's not how they ask it. They ask it, does the Bible say anything against this? And if I don't have chapter and verse where it says exactly, you know, the Bible says do not use the Internet. You know, the Internet's not in there. God's all for it. Well, there are probably some things God's not for on the Internet. I'm just saying. But it's not in there. Or, I don't see the word iPhone in here at all, Jerry. And it's like, no, iPhone's not in there at all. But, you know, there's probably something. I don't think God's against iPhones, okay? You know, although the apple got a bad rap back in Genesis 3. It's really not apple. It's fruit, not apple, okay? You should read your Bible. But there's probably some things that you could do on or with your iPhone that you probably shouldn't do as a Christ follower. So we're all about, well, what does the Bible say? And does the Bible eliminate this? And... And if we would wrestle with this question instead, the best question ever, we could foolproof our life. And at the same time, this question, even when you know the question and you know the benefit of the question, it takes a lot of courage to ask this question. Just to ask it. It's like, I'm not even planning on doing it, Jerry, but just to ask it takes some courage. Because just by asking this question... It clears some things up and it removes some layers of deception that we're all prone to live with. I'm just like you. I can talk myself into anything, can't you? I can make the worst decision for my family look looks like the best decision for my family or for me. I can make the worst choice out of three choices sound like the best choice because it's the one I want to make. I can talk myself into wasting money. I can talk myself into wasting time. I can make a bad idea sound like a good idea. That's how we get into the messes that we're in, isn't it? Isn't that how we get into our messes? This question exposes that deception, the deception of our hearts and our souls. And it doesn't like no other question. But if we allow it to, this question can protect us from further disaster, from further poor, poor choices, and from further pain in our life our scripture today is from the book of ephesians it's only three verses ephesians 5 15 16 and 17 then i threw one in from the old testament right at the end and this is where we get the basis for the best question ever and sometimes we cover a lot of scripture and we go into practical application all the time it's like we want to apply god's word to our lives In this particular case, we're going to drill real deep in just a few verses. And what I want you to understand is it's not necessarily the quantity of the Bible that you read. You don't have to read your Bible for an hour a day. Five minutes a day is really all you need because the Bible is so impactful that just a few verses are enough to try to apply. I always have those kind of people in my life who are like, have you learned anything new? Have you learned anything new? Have you learned anything new? There's nothing wrong with learning new things. I'm just saying, for me, I'm still working on how do I love God with all my heart love people as myself. You know, the great commandment, I probably it's going to take a, a lifetime for me to master that. You know, some days I do good in that. Other days I'm like, I've got a long way to go, buddy. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what just came out of me, but it isn't loving to people around me. And even God's up there a little embarrassed going, oh, my goodness, he's got a long way to go. But this scripture from Ephesians, I want to give you a little bit of background about this particular book of the Bible. We just went through Philippians. You know that Paul wrote wrote the book of Philippians to the church in Philippi. That's why it's called Philippians, a church he planted um, in the city of Philippi. He was in Rome. He was in prison. And similarly, this book of Ephesians... Paul writes to the Christians in the church that he planted in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, Antioch, and Ephesus. Now, the Christians who were living in Ephesus, first of all, Paul, if you don't know who Apostle Paul is, he was a Hebrew Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee, who became a Christ follower. He had a, literally a Damascus Road experience on the Damascus Road. Jesus, the re- The resurrected Christ met him on that road and changed his life forever. And Paul wrote over half of the New Testament. And he writes to the Christ followers, the followers of Jesus, in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus, third biggest city in the Roman Empire, and Ephesus was... um, it was a melting pot. It was people from all different walks of life, all different socioeconomic, all different backgrounds, all different religions. It's like a New York City's a melting pot and Miami's a melting pot, same kind of, L.A.'s a melting pot, same kind of thing in Ephesus. And Paul is writing to this, this city that's a mixture of Jews, mixture of Christians, and a whole lot of Gentile people. And they live in this very, very pagan city. Uh, you can visit Ephesus today. It's a great place to go visit. It's in Turkey. In fact, Nancy and I went and visited Ephesus about 10 years ago on our 25th anniversary. We took a cruise to the Holy Land, and one of the great places that we went to was the city of Ephesus. Um, it was one of the ports was just outside of Ephesus. And the reason why it's so incredible to see is it, it's a unique thing happened in Ephesus. The third city or rebuilding of the city of Ephesus, which is where Paul... And walked 2,000 years ago, first century of Christ, Ephesus, was covered up by, they had this earthquake, this mountain tumbles in, covers the whole city, they just pick up and move uh, closer to the, it, it moved the shoreline, they moved closer, it's a port city, they moved the port to, the, to where the water was, because we can't be a port city if we don't have any waterfront anymore, um, and that preserved it for 2,000 years in an incredible way, so they're digging it out now. It's like 20% excavated, and you have three- and four-story buildings from back then from 2,000 years ago. That's just fully standing. They, they, just Google the library at Ephesus, and you'll go, oh, my gosh, what are those little things? Those are people down there. Oh, my goodness. Um, if you ever get a chance to go, go. It was, to us, one of the greatest places that we've ever been. But it's a pagan town. I mean, they have temples there to other gods, to gods and goddesses. And some of the temple uh, religion involved temple prostitutes. You can imagine that's not on God's plan. Um, Very, very pagan uh, culture compared to even what happens in our culture today. And into this pagan culture, the Apostle Paul writes to these people who are trying to be Christians in a culture that's anything but Christian. And in Ephesus, he gives them a list of things that Christians should do. He says, watch out for this. Don't do that, don't do this, make sure you do this, make sure you do this, you know, don't 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 get involved in in sexual immorality, abstain from that. Don't let your greed control what you do with your money. And he gives them this list of do's and this list of don'ts based on living a good Christian life. And he knew that their response is very similar to our response. And many Christian Americans will look at the Bible and they'll say, well, You know, that's nice, Jerry, and, and that's the ideal, and I hear what you're saying, and I, I just wish I was that good of a person, but but I'm just not that good. I'm just not that disciplined. I'm just not that that consistent, um, certainly it would be good to live that kind of life. And, and I agree that those are good values, and I even want to teach those good values to our kids. Jerry, would you please teach these good values to my kids? But, but we just can't do that ourselves. So the Apostle Paul is essentially giving them, the Christians in Ephesus and us, the Christians in America, the secret to living the kind of life you really do want to live, And he also tells us how to avoid situations that we wish we had avoided in the past, that we have a track record of messing up. So let me start by reading you chapter 5, verse 15 of of Ephesians 5, where Paul writes and says, So be very careful how you live. Circle, very careful. So be very careful how you live. He said if you want to live a life that's going to, take you where you want it to go, if you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, if you're a Christian and you're a God follower or a Christ follower, he says, you got to be careful how you live. You can't be careless about your decisions. And the word careful there in the text really means to be on the lookout. That's what it means. He says, if if you want to get to the end of your life and be able to look back on your life and not have regrets, but have a life worth looking back on, then you've got to look out for what's behind you and look out for what's around you and look out for what's in front of you. You have to be careful how you live. You've got to be careful how you do marriage. You've got to be careful how you do business. You've got to be careful how you treat morality. You've got to be careful how you deal with partnerships. You've got to be careful with your investments. You can't be careless and end up where you think or hope that you're going to be. He says, don't live like fools, is the word that he uses, You could say, don't live like stupid people, dumb people, or fools, but the really word is stupid. But, live like those who are wise. Paul says, look, if you want to live a life that's pleasing to your Heavenly Father, or even if you don't, but you do want to live a life that you don't have a lot of regrets, and you you want to get to where you want to go, you just can't meanderly go with the flow, bro, through life. You can't just go days and months and years letting culture take you wherever the cultural winds and norms are blowing. You have to be careful and live as the wise, not as the unwise, slash dumb, slash stupid, slash foolish live. And then he gives us this brand new standard. He says, but like those who are wise... And here's where this starts to get practical and we start to drill down on some of the practical meaning. I want you to write this in. Our temptation is always to ask, how close can I get to sinning without actually sinning? Where's the line? How close can I get to sinning without actually sinning? How far can I go and not actually break the law? How close can I get to immorality without it being immoral? How close can I get to being unethical without actually being unethical? How close can I get to disaster without experiencing the consequences of disaster? How close can I fly to the flame without being singed or smelling like smoke? How close, how far can I stretch it? We ask those questions. We live that way. You know, well, 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 does the Bible say anything against it? Well, oh, then I, then God's for it. Well, I don't think He's for that, even though God hasn't said anything specifically against that brand or that, you know, that activity. We ask, him, we're like, well, what's the speed limit? Because we all know, right? Speed limit is fifty-five. But you get mad at the guys driving fifty-five in front of you. God forbid fifty-four. Right, because we all know police officers are friends of ours, you know. Let's have them go to church. And like, at hey, 55, you, because you're asking them, you're like, how, how fast? Can What's the speed limit? What's the real speed limit? Well, the real speed limit is 55. They put it on a sign, right? In some places, they even flash the what you're doing at you now to help you slow down and take away that oh, I had no idea. Look, excuse. But 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 we all know you can go five over. I mean, you can go five over. Right, I mean that, that's the unwritten rule. The unwritten limit is five over. I mean, you're telling that officer, whoa, 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 whoa. I was going four. No, 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 no. My friend, who's a cop, you're going to get him on the phone in a second. He told me you let me off at five over. You know, I mean. So we want to not only know what the what the line is, we want to know what happens if I cross the line. And what happens if I really go far across the line? You know, we want to know all that. You say to your kids, you say to your, lo- don't you step one foot outside of your room? And what are they doing? Mom, I told, it's a toe. It's just a toe. You know, it's not a whole foot. It's only a toe. That's how little kids are like this. Where did they get that from? Parents, older siblings, and some of them are born that way, right? <laughs> in sin. We want to know where that line is. We want to get as close to the line. We want to know. the guard, You know, you, you, you go to those places like, oh, it's dangerous. You're going to fall off the cliff. There's guardrails way over here. Like, that guardrail's way too. It's five feet away from the cliff that's going to kill me. I can step over that guardrail. You know how many people die in the national parks every day? Every day in our country or every year in our country, people die. They go over the cliff because they step over the guardrail. Is it safe to be like one step over the guardrail? No, that's why they have the guardrail. Oh, let me show you, it is too safe. I want to give him my card. Hey, I do great funerals. I'm only kidding. I don't ever say that. Who wants to do that? We must, we want to know. Is it legal? Is it memorial? Is it permissible? God, through the Apostle Paul, and through really the whole Old Testament prophets, he says, Wrong question. Why are you asking that question? That's not the right question. The question we should ask is not, Is there a verse against it? Because even if, it, if there isn't a verse against it, doesn't it mean that that's God's plan for our life. Here's the question we've got to begin to ask. Would you write this down? The question that we've got to ask is, What is the wise thing for me to do? Is it legal? doesn't really matter. What's the wise thing for me to do? Is there a verse against it? Irrelevant. What's the wise thing for me to do? We're not supposed to live like the unwise. We're not supposed to ask, well, how close can I get to disaster without feeling the consequences of disaster? How close can I get to the edge without actually going over? What's the wise thing to do? Stay behind the guardrail. With every invitation, with every opportunity that we get we've got to ask this question what's the wise thing to do and this is a brand new standard and it is very counterculture because let me just say if you go through life making this your question and then responding to it there will be lots of people in your life who are like what's wrong with you that's crazy talk you're way too conservative there's nothing wrong everybody's doing it look i'm doing it i'm fine what are you judging me kind of, oh man because It takes you away from, if it's not illegal, it must be okay. Or, Well, it was consensual, so it must be okay. Or neither one of us were married, so it must be okay. Paul says, is that your standard? Is that where you want to live your life, is on that edge? Because do you understand that if you live your life over the guardrail, on the edge, for very long, certainly for your whole life, you are setting yourself up. For disaster brand new question at every opportunity at every invitation at every crossroad at every choice or fork in the right what's the wise thing for me to do Paul goes on to give us more insight in verse 16 he says in verse 16 and 17 make the most of every opportunity that word opportunity literally means the most of your time make the most of every opportunity in these evil days circle these evil days now, he's talking about first century context to the people in Ephesus. He says, people of Ephesus, look around your city. These are evil days. In other words, if you pick up your feet right now and you let the current of culture just sweep you along, you will eventually end up in a place you don't want to be because these are evil days. If you handle money the way culture says handle money, if you handle morality the way culture says handle morality, if you do marriage the way culture says do marriage, you will not end up where you hope you will end up because these are evil days. If you prioritize your children or prioritize whatever your priorities are in life, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, you will not be where you hoped you would be because these are evil days. And he said this to that culture... It was evil back then, and I believe it's equally evil now, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says to this group of people who are in a, live in a culture very much like ours, you've got to ask a different question. Not, is it, is it legal? Not, is, it, is everybody else doing it? The best question and the only question is, what's the wise thing to do? And for those of us who are believers, we are actually commanded. We are called to live according to wisdom. Not the current trend of culture or society. He says in verse 16, Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. 17. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. So what is what Paul is doing here is so important because what he's saying to them, he's really saying it to us, is would you just pause? Would you just pause and listen to this? He says... I know our propensity to deceive ourselves. I know our propensity to play games. To say, yeah, but but what about this verse? And Well, I don't know. Or I wasn't raised that way. He says, look, those are all excuses. Stop making excuses for just a second. Set your excuses aside for just a minute. You can pick them right back up in a minute. But for just a minute, would you just pause and would you face up to what the Lord wants you to do? That's don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Instead of playing games, instead of justifying instead of bl- blaming other people, blaming mama, why don't you just take a moment and ask, what's the wise thing to do? Ask that. Let that question penetrate your soul and expose you to what you know is there. And Sometimes we don't want to ask that question because we don't want to be faced with what the wise thing to do is because we have no intention of doing the wise thing. He says, even if you have no intention, even if you're not going to apply it, even if you're not going to... You owe it to yourself to at least ask it and know what the wise thing. Then, when you do the non-wise thing, or the dumb thing, or the foolish thing, and I'm not allowed to say the S-word, the stupid thing, then, you know, I chose to do that. And now that I have regret, now that I have pain, and now that I have hurt other people, it's not anybody's fault but me. I did the unwise thing. Would you at least face up to that fact? That God has something different in mind for your relationships. And God has something different in mind for how you handle morality and how you handle your business and how you handle your marriage and how you raise your kids. Would you just pause and say, yep, you're right, God. I'm afraid to ask it. I'm afraid to ask what is the wise thing to do. Because if I ask what is the wise thing to do, I already know the answer and I don't think I want to do what the wise thing is to do in this case. Because I want to do what I want to do. Not what the wise thing is to do. But would you be willing to face to, to the fact that God has a standard for your life? And we're going to break this question down a little more in depth. What is the wise thing to do it needs to be asked on three levels. I want you to jot these down. The first one, level one, is in light of my past experience, write that down, in light of my past experience, what's the wise thing for me to do? Not in light of what everybody else is doing, what everybody else is experienced in life, Not in light of, well, what's legal, what's ethical, what's moral, but in light of my own personal past experience. In other words, the last time I went to one of those, what happened? The last time I got that invitation, what happened? The last time I bought one of those, what happened? The last time I traveled with those guys on a business trip after the business deal, where did we go and what happened? What's the wise thing in light of the last time in my life? What's the wise thing, not for everybody else, but what's the wise thing for me to do in light of my past experience? And when you ask that question, often the answer is crystal clear. Because you have a unique past. You have a unique history. Nobody has the history that you've had. You already know that your past, your past history, even your past mistakes, they, it predisposes you for certain things. So in light of your past history financially or your past history morally or relationally or ethically or professionally, in light of your past history, what is the wise thing to do in any or each of those areas? Suddenly, it's as if God pulls you out of the pack and says, don't worry about what everybody else is doing, this is between me and you. You hear us talk about a personal relationship with God all the time. That God has a personal plan for your life. And He has designed it in light of all of your past experiences, good, bad, and good decisions and bad decisions. Because those certain decisions that you've already made in the past, they set you up for certain temptations. They make you weak in certain areas. So what is the wise thing to do in light of your own personal past experience? What's the wise thing for me to do? The second area or level that we have to ask this question is in light of my current circumstances... What is the wise thing for me to do in light of my current circumstances? In light of the fact of what's happening in my life right now? In light of where am I emotionally right now? Where are we as a family financially right now? The decision that you need to make financially may be fine later on, five years from now, because you might be in a different place financially, and you can make that decision, and it'll be a fine decision. It's not a wrong decision. But right now, it might not be a wrong decision, but it's not a wise decision because of what's going on in our life. You know, we got, we got this going on or that going on. The kids are in college or i got, you know, job change or whatever. So financially, it's not like it's a sinful decision, but, oh, it's not the wise decision. We're going to put that decision off until there's a time when my circumstances are different. What's going on in my life emotionally right now? What's the wise thing to do? To, what's the wise decision, wise thing to do in light of my current reality? This is the question that we ask at every level. This is why it's the best question ever. What's the wise thing to do in my past experience? What's the wise thing to do in light of what's going on in my life right now? And the third level is, in light of my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do? When you think of where you want your marriage to be in the future, then what's the wise thing for me to do now? When you think of, the relationship that you want to have with your kids in the future, then what's the wise thing for me to do right now? In light of the, the kind of man that you want to marry someday or the kind of woman that you want to marry someday, then what's the wise thing to do in your current dating relationship right now? Most of us are old enough to understand or to know that some of the unwise decisions, maybe most of the unwise decisions that we've made in our past, have robbed us from a preferable future. We're paying the consequences from our bad decisions. Where you are today at your age right now is not where you planned to be necessarily. And some of that has to do with the fact that, hmm, I made decisions back there that now I don't get to make the decisions that I could be making today if I hadn't have made that mistake, if I hadn't made that bad decision back there. We deceive ourselves, and then we refuse to ask the question at these proper levels. And then whenever we hide behind that, well, there was no verse against it, or the pastor didn't preach against it. You know, it's not illegal. It's not immoral. Every, everybody's doing it. As long as we hide there, we rob ourselves from our future hopes and dreams that we could have or we could have had. Most of us have lived long enough to know what that's like. Because God has called us to a different standard. And the new standard is what's the wise thing to do in light of my past experiences and my current circumstances and my future hopes and dreams. Don't rob yourself by fooling yourself. Nobody plans to mess up their lives. No third grader when the teacher says, What do you want to be in life? What do you want to do with your life? Or first grader, what do you want to be? What do you want? Nobody says, I just want to wreck my life. Right? And some of you teachers, you know you always got that kid in your class, but even they, you know, they want to be president or they want to be a cop, or they want all the tools around, or they want to be a fireman, but but that they don't They don't say, I want to, you know, my goal is to end up incarcerated. You know, I hope I find the electric chair in my future. Nobody is planning that kind of future. You think of all the messes in your life that you've made, all the messes in culture, all the messes in the life of others. Nobody looks across the altar. At their future spouse and says, you know, I think I'm going to have an affair and blow this whole thing up. Nobody does that. But it happens all the time. I'm going to get married and I'm just going to make a big old mess. I'm just going to wreck a lot of lives. It's going to cost a fortune and we're going to be bankrupt. That's my goal. We chuckle. Happens all the time. Nobody ever plans for their marriage to go that way. Nobody nobody ever holds a sweet little baby in their arms and says, Oh, this sweet little baby, I'm going to make this boy so codependent he can never live without me. When I'm gone, he's going to be a total failure, my sweet little angel. Nobody's over like, Oh, this little girl, I'm going to raise a rebel. You know, I'm going to raise her so that she she's just defiant over any authority, you know, that she will end up incarcerated. She'll end up in a, in an orange striped jumpsuit for her whole life. Nobody ever does that. Nobody ever, oh, these two little kids, I'm, I'm just going to they're going to need so much counseling. I'm just going to be so controlling and so hard on them, harsh and so tight that they'll they'll have decades of therapy. Never the plan happens all the time. No teenage girl ever planned to get pregnant her junior year of high school. No one ever plans to become addicted to anything. Think of all the addictions. No second grader says, oh, I'm going to be an alcoholic. Can't wait to be a drug addict. Heroin. I'm, I'm all over heroin. That's no one's plan. Think of all the money spent helping people to overcome addictions. Never once did people plan to wreck their lives. But it happens all the time. Why? It's really simple. No one plans to mess up their lives, but we don't plan not to. And the way you plan not to is not by asking where the line is. It's not by asking, is it legal? It's not by asking, is there a verse against it? The way you plan not to is by asking, in light of my past experience, in light of my current circumstances, in light of my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do? So let me ask you, what's the wise thing for you to do? What's the wise thing for you to do financially right now with the next financial decision that you're making? What's the wise thing for you to do morally in your life right now? What's the wise thing for you to do right now in your marriage? Or in your profession? Or in your career? The best thing that we can ask ourselves is what's what's in me that's resisting this common sense question? Why do I refuse to ask this question, to look at When I know my heart is not going to take me where I want to be. And as you wrestle with that question, chances are your heavenly father, your personal heavenly father, who has called you to live a life of wisdom, he will speak into your heart. And you'll not only discover something about yourself, you'll discover something about him as well. You see, the teenager that says, well, it's my life, I'll do what I please, leave me alone. I'm not hurting anyone else, I'm just, it's my life. What they don't realize is, of course, they're hurting someone else. They're hurting their parents with every bad decision they make. They're hurting their siblings with every bad decision they make. They're hurting, possibly, their future children with every bad decision. Every father, every husband, he says, I'm going to do what I want to do. Discover that when you do what you want to do, your family suffers the consequences, not just you. Your dumb, foolish, S-word, stupid decisions don't just cost you, buddy. They cost everyone around you, and we all know that. There have been decisions made by other people in your life, and you are still paying the price. And you didn't do anything but just be related or know them. Everyone around you. Proverbs 28, 26 in the Old Testament says, Those who trust their own insight, and the New American Standard Version, by the by the way, says those who trust their own heart, are foolish. There's that word again. But anyone who walks in wisdom, anyone who walks in wisdom is safe. That's what it means. To, to trust your own heart is, I know what's best. Don't tell me what to do. Don't, don't give me any facts. Don't give me any evidence. If it feels right, I'm going to do it. But look at the promise. But he who walks in wisdom is safe. That's the promise of wisdom, safety. And if we applied this to our question to our lives 18 years ago, think of all the things that we would have been safe from. If we had applied it 10 years ago, when we retaught this series, think of all the money that we would have saved. You pl- because here's the thing. Wisdom is a path. When you start making one wise decision guess what the next decision that the next wise decision is easier and the next one is easier and when you've made 10 wise decisions in a row i'm just telling you when you make 10 in a row the next decision that pops up you're already going to know the wise thing to do and when you've made 95 or 98 out of 100 decisions wise oh you made 3 mistakes what was i thinking but 98 out of 100 were wise people will be coming to you Hey, what would you do in this situation? Why are they coming to you? They see in your life you're getting to where they want to go. And they see the wisdom in your life. Because you've been allowing your Heavenly Father to help you. Same thing is true with, by the way, foolishness. When you're on the prodigal path and you're on the foolish path, I see this all the time. People that are on the prodigal path, on the foolish path, they've made 13 foolish, dumb, shall I say it, stupid decisions. They come to a fork in the road It's like A, B, it's not 50-50 that they'll make the right decision. You know what it is? It's like 5% they'll make the right decision. They're good at making stupid decisions. And the 14th decision will be also foolish and selfish and bad. And the 15th and the 16th. Every now and then they'll make a good one, but they won't learn. And they'll live a life on the prodigal path of bad decisions that will lead. And they'll, they'll be the bad example where I'll point to is you don't make those decisions. See how he ended up? Get off the prodigal path. Get on the grace path and start, hmm, Pastor Jerry talked about wisdom back in James. And we studied James. And it says in there somewhere, I've got to ask. God for wisdom and he'll give me wisdom. I don't know what verse it is, but I think, hey God, a, is there a verse about I ask you for wisdom and you'll give it to me? I don't need the verse. Just give me the wisdom. Every day. And your Heavenly Father says this. If you'll do that, if you'll ask the question, a lot of my past experience, a lot of my current circumstances, a lot of my future hopes to dreams, what's the wise thing to do? God, what's the wise thing for me to do? I want some of that wisdom. Your Heavenly Father says, I will give it to you. I will, when you stop asking, what's the moral line? Is there a verse against it? Is it legal? Is everybody else doing it? And you start asking, what's the wise thing to do? Your Heavenly Father will become a personal Heavenly Father to you. And I will say, come with me. I'm going to guide you in the way of wisdom. Now, here's the prayer that I want us to, to, to learn today. The prayer that I want you to learn today is a daily prayer that I want you to ask every day. It's simple. God, give me the wisdom to know what's right and the courage to do what's right, even when it's hard. God, give me the wisdom. You can pray this morning, noon, and night. You could pray this at the same time saying, thank you for this food, Lord, amen. God, give me the wisdom to know what is right and the courage to do what is right, even when it's hard. And thank you for the fried chicken. Amen. Okay? You could add that to grace. Okay? Instead of God's great, God's good, less us thank you for teach our kids to, to, to pray this. God, give me the wisdom to know what's right. Say that with me. God, give me the wisdom to know what's right. Say it one more time. God, give me the wisdom to know what's right. You already got to memorize. God, give me the wisdom to know what's right. And then, God, give me the courage to do what's right, even when it's hard. God, give me the wisdom to know what's right. Give me the courage to do what's right, even when it's hard. Get our kids to learn to pray that prayer. And God's answer to that prayer is, yes, I will. I will guide you in the way of wisdom. And you will be delivered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is the best question ever, but but you know my heart. And there are times where I'm afraid to ask this question because I already know the answer. God, give us the courage to quit playing games. Give us the courage to peel back the layers of deception. God, give us the courage to do the right thing, the wise thing. And Father, give us insight into our own heart. Give us the wisdom. God, give us the wisdom to know what is right and the courage to do what is right, even when it's hard. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.